Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. Well, good day to everyone. This is the YouTube channel, Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm Alan Bevere. I'm a pastor, professor, and I am a connoisseur of coffee. And I say that because our guest today is also a connoisseur of coffee. And in fact, he is the only person I know who has an espresso maker in his car. Uh, and what does that plug into the cigarette lighter, Lee? Is that what it does? It does. Yeah, they they recommend that you pull over before you use it. Yes, they do. So I'm and I'm sure you do that because you're a very sane person. Um, but yeah, you're the first person, the only person I've ever known who who takes his espresso that seriously. So. Certainly, um, what my motto, one thing we have in common is our motto in the morning is not the best part of waking up is Folgers in the cup. No. Yeah, we have to, we, we take our coffee very seriously. So um, my guest today is Lee Weatherby, and uh, we're going to talk uh, uh, conspiracy theories, or at least talk about uh, personalities and conspiracy theories. Lee, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, at present, I am a professor and department chair in the clinical counseling or clinical mental health counseling program at Ashland Seminary. And uh, in the past, I have functioned as a social worker, as uh, an employee assistance program counselor. I worked in uh, community mental health and uh, as a clinical director of a fairly large <clears throat> mental health practice. And so I've, I've got a fair amount of diversity in uh, in my portfolio or certainly in my past. Uh, at present, I have pretty limited clinical work. The, the focus of the clinical work I do right now is personality assessment. Okay, yeah, um, and you do a lot of testing and assessment. I do, yeah, yeah. Okay. very good. And you also, I need to say, you and your wife are members at First United Methodist here in Ashland where I pastor. That's right. Oh so, yeah, and uh, so that's a good thing, that's a good thing. At least on my end, anyway. Yeah, well, for me as well, I, you know, I, I keep looking for, you know, the thing that struck me um, when you first started doing virtual um, church is there's a, there's a section that Ryan, who's the one who put the video together, pans down the center aisle. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I was surprised at, at the strong emotional reaction I had to this building. I did yeah. not know, I didn't know that was in there. And that, yeah. that really surprised me. I'll tell you, it's tough preaching to an empty room. Um, yeah. And the one thing that I've realized in, in giving the sermons in that way is how much I actually draw from the energy uh, mm -hmm. in the congregation. Uh, in some, some Sundays you're more energetic than others, but, but the reality is it's, I do draw off of it. And I think that it has, it is, it is uh, at least I, maybe no one else notices, but I notice it when I, when I, so anyway, so maybe at some point we'll be back in soon and be together again, which will be great. So let's talk about uh, conspiracy theories for a moment, or conspiracy theorists. Uh, I think we want to make a couple qualifications. First, um, there are sometimes conspiracy theories that turn out to be true. You know, governments can right. have secrets. Corporations, big 
entities can have secrets. We know that. And so sometimes uh, conspiracy, it, it, sometimes being, being suspicious that there's more to a story than we know is not necessarily uh, a bad thing. Right. But having said that, um, I have known some personalities over the years who tend to just uh, grab onto almost every conspiracy theory out there. Sure. Uh, and so my first question to you is, what kind of personality seems to be drawn to, to the conspiracy, that there's something bigger going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and let me add my own qualification. I, we talked about this before we went, before we started taping, but yeah. we're, we're talking about people that are not, that don't have a clinical diagnosis. They're not struggling with mental illness. They don't, you know, it, this right. is not a psychotic process. Right. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting constellation um, because I, I do personality assessment. I think of it in terms of personality traits. Mm -hmm. And the, the literature seems to indicate a really interesting combination of personality traits. Individuals who are prone to believing conspiracy theories have a, what seems like um, a mix of traits that don't feel like they should go together. They tend to be pretty open um, in terms of what Carl Rogers called openness to experience. Um, they're really open to alternate explanations for things. So they're going to be pretty open to, and I don't mean this to sound silly, but things like Bigfoot or right. UFOs and things like that, um, where those of us that aren't, don't have the, that trait are going to say, well, no, I, that's that's unreasonable. I'm not going to believe that. So there, you've got some pretty strong openness, and uh, in a seeming contrast, they tend to be pretty suspicious. They tend to be pretty skeptical, not very trusting, um, and in some cases, kind of disagreeable. Okay. And so it's it's really an interesting combination of of things. I think part of how that sets them up to believe in conspiracy theories is uh, they're going to be skeptical of uh, authorities whose, whose approach doesn't fit their personality. And they're gonna be open to theories that the rest of us would reject. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned some of that. So for example, when I think of alternative explanations, I mean, you certainly can be open to an alternative way of explaining something, mm -hmm. but not necessarily embrace conspiracy theories. Right. right. So, um, so I guess, so the, the, let's talk about the skeptical part of that. They tend to be skeptical and, and suspicious of things. So, so if they're, so are these folks who also tend just not to be trusting in general of people? Yeah, tend, tend not to be trusting in general, um, tend to be folks who are socially alienated from other okay. people. Um, and so, um, and they, they tend to be uh, fairly, fairly concrete or unsophisticated thinkers, and that's not a comment on their intelligence. Right, right. Um, but, but they don't, um, they have a really low tolerance for ambiguity. Okay, so for them, everything just needs to be crystal clear. Right, right, um, and, and fairly, uh, fairly uncomplicated, fairly simple. Yeah. 
Which explains to me when, whenever I'm dealing with someone who is bought into a conspiracy that their explanations usually are very, very in-depth, very long, and they've got it all figured out. Um, so, so the lack of ambiguity, um, also part of that would be, a, uh, or the lack of ability to accept ambiguity, uh, and they're not complex thinkers, so nuance certainly is not something that they're going to understand. Doesn't tend to be. Um, where there's complexity is uh, kind of what I'd call the backfilling, where they come up with, with complex ways to explain how things that are not connected are connected. They've, they've come to, con typically, they come to conclusions about relationships between events or, or, or uh, variables that don't exist. They, they're prone to uh, doing what I warn my students against ever doing is, is concluding causation from correlation. Because two things happen at the same time or close to each other doesn't mean they're related. So can you explain that a little bit more, that causation does not mean correlation? Sure. Uh, because there's a strong relationship between things or because they appear to be related doesn't mean they are. Um, silly examples that I use when I've taught a stats class, there's a very strong correlation, very strong relationship statistically between ice cream sales and boating accidents. Okay. And, yeah. And you, you picked up what the third variable is. Yeah, it's summertime. It's, yeah, yeah. But Sometimes. if you don't know that, um, also a really strong statistical relationship in any particularly urban area, the number of churches and the number of bars. And you can spin all kinds of theories about the struggle between good and evil, but they're related to population. Yeah, so there's, there's a connectedness, but not necessarily a cause. Right, that's right. And so if I'm understanding you, the problem with some, uh, or the attraction that, uh, conspiracy theorists have to this is that, that they see correlations as causes when there's no evidence to suggest A causes B. A and B are correlated, but they're not, they don't lead to, one doesn't lead to one. To right. Another. Yeah. Okay. Right. And, and it, you know, the other, the other piece, and I think this is kind of universally human. I mean, we all want to feel special. Yeah. So, uh, I think part of the attraction is I'm going to feel pretty special if I feel like I've got the inside track that other people don't have. Yeah. And how does that relate? Um, I think you said that some of these folks tend to be, um, I don't remember what the word is. I want to get the word right. Alienated or not in. They're, maybe, they're on the margins. Uh, they're on the margins of social groups or whatever. And so does that then uh, lead them to, to want to have a theory that will get them in the circle in a sense? Well, I think, yeah, I think part of what happens is, uh, you know, if, if I share conspiracy theory with other people, then I've got a sense of membership, a sense of belonging, a sense of, uh, of fitting in, you know, and a, and a sense of specialness. Um, right. You know, it's uh, no surprise that the, the first of the seven deadly sins is pride. Mm. And, and so I think uh, conspiracy theory really panders to to our pride, our uh, universal human need for significance. Right. And so, uh, you know, I think that's, um, and being on the inside track can pass for intelligence. Right. Right. Um, where does, 
in some of these uh, theories, where does confirmation bias play in? Because, for example, um, I know that there seem to be some conspiracies that are not connected to one's political views. I, you know, my experience with people who are anti-vaxxers, and I, I would say that's a conspiracy theory, personally. Uh, I, I, I've run into anti-vaxxers who are liberals, conservatives. That, that doesn't seem to be an issue there. But, but I think of late, so for example, with the COVID-19, I think the vast majority of conspiracy theorists that I've encountered, uh, their politics tends to be more conservative. But I also uh, remember back in after 9-11, uh, having actually colleagues of mine whose politics were more to the left, uh, really entertaining the notion that George Bush knew about 9-11 beforehand, you know. And, and uh, so where does confirmation bias sort of play into some of this? Well, I, I think uh, I think it plays right into that idea of of uh, being special. You know, I I don't want to admit that I might be wrong, and so I'm going to look for uh, I'm going to look for theories that, like you said, confirm what I already believe. Right. And I think part of what happens uh, again, and and that that kind of uncomplicated thinking happens throughout the political spectrum. Yes. Um, you know, if, if I tend to be an alienated person, if I tend to be on the margins, I'm going to look for something that bolsters what I already believe because I'm, I'm probably not secure enough to look for things that, that challenge what I already think. And I'm, so I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm kind of in the echo chamber. I'm not reading things that are from sources that don't confirm what I already believe. And the other piece that happens uh, is, well, confirmation bias really is just a hermeneutic filter. Right. It's how we interpret things. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that with the sources. Um, you know, we, are, we, we live in an age of social media and the internet. We are not starving for information anymore. Um, you know, we've got too much of it. And that, of course, creates its own kind of issues with sorting through things. But, but let's talk about... Um, uh, what is necessary or what kind of practices should I engage in, for example, myself, so that I am not prone to go after a conspiracy theory? Because I could be, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to say I'm immune from uh, that uh, in certain cases. What, what do I have to surround myself with uh, in order to uh, not go down that path? Well, I, I think what, what we need to do is consider the source. You know, the, the example that um, is a humorous example from my past. When, when our daughter was about four, I was passing on some, I'm sure, pearls of fatherly wisdom. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, as four-year-olds can do, she looked at me really seriously and then she said, who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. guess as, as though I couldn't come up with it on my own. And I, I use that as an example. I've used it with, with students and with clients to say, this is, this is what we want to pay attention to. You know, when, when I'm looking at something, um, who's telling me this? What's the source of this? And even if we're not prone to being skeptical, to be a little skeptical it's, and just pay attention to what is this source's agenda? Yeah. You know, and, and how credible is this source? And, and so I think uh, we need to take the time to find 
multiple sources leading to the same conclusion before we start to take something seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was funny you said that. Um, I always say that uh, children go into two stages too. My dad knows everything to dad you don't know anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. at the yeah. age of four, she was headed toward the second. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At some point, the mystique starts to wear That's off. Yeah. Right. As, they, as they grow yeah. up. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So the other thing along with that is I can't tell you how many times uh, I've heard persons who are sort of into this, into these theories also um, just, just uh, you talk about considering the source what what they do is they write off every kind of reputable source. Um, mm. It's all fake news or it's all suspect. I don't know who to trust in the media anymore. Right. Uh, but of course, they do have their sources they trust, and usually they're pretty fringe sources. So is there is there a justification? Uh, can, can we justify believing these things because uh, we simply don't want to engage other sources uh, because we just don't trust them, we or we have decided and ignorant. We've decided to be ignorant. I'm going to be ignorant of what uh, what this source says because I just can't trust them. Yeah, and I and I think um, I have to be careful here, but I think in the current political climate, a masterful job has been done of undermining the credibility of of what in the past we accepted as authoritative sources. Yeah. I, and I agree with that. And not that sometimes some of the media hasn't uh, helped help that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They certainly have helped uh, hurt their hurt their cause, I should say. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that there are not sources out there that can be trusted. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the skeptical of authority. You said that these folks tend to be skeptical of authority. What authorities do they tend to be skeptical of? Well, skeptical of, uh, of authorities that don't support their belief in a conspiracy theory, you okay. know. Um, so, um, you know, I talked about the importance to consider the source. I think in their minds, they do consider the source. They say, well, that's the, that's the mainstream media or that's the liberal press and they've got a, they've got a bias. And uh, to an extent, that's accurate. You know, there, there is an agenda. And uh, so I, I, I think that skepticism, um, and let me add to that, <clears throat> in, in North American culture, um, I think there's some social status and some social reward for being cynical and being skeptical and being suspicious. The, uh, there's almost a sense in our culture that, that if, you're, uh, if you believe things just at face value, then you're not very bright or you, you know, God forbid you're naive. So I, I think that that plays into that skepticism. Yeah. Um, I'm always suspicious of the, of the people on social media who use the word sheeple, right? You know, as if, you know, this is the conventional wisdom. So you're all just, you know, you're like the lemmings heading over the cliff. Actually, that was actually a, uh, an image somebody I know on social media used a while ago uh, yeah. who's not a who, who, who thinks who, who believes and you know of course people are allowed to raise questions and have their beliefs but he believes the the that the lockdowns that we've had are, are a mistake okay but basically compared those of us who think that there was probably a uh, necessary move to make we're heading like lemmings over the cliff 
So there is, so there's kind of a reward. So that also, that, but the other thing that that does is that it, it gives you a reward in that you're, you stand out from the crowd, right? Right. That's right. Um, and you're that's a free thinker. I'm not, yeah, I'm a free thinker. I'm not one of the sheeple. I just don't accept things at face value. And, yeah. and so it passes for critical thinking. And it, it interests me to see, not just in social media, but in the news, how, um, how inflammatory the idea of masks are. Oh, that, that has just absolutely uh, uh, befuddled me. Uh, yeah. that, that, and so, so, so I guess the question, Lee, is why latch onto that? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, uh, I think for people that don't think masks are necessary, for some reason it's inflammatory. I, I, yeah. I'm not sure if I understand that. Um, I, I think if I'm out in a mask, it challenges your belief that that's unnecessary. And I, I think, uh, you know, and I think part of what we're seeing too is the, the change in our culture uh, where there's no such thing as expertise anymore. Everybody's opinion has the same weight. So, you know, somebody at the post office may feel comfortable accosting me and telling me that I'm making a mistake or that I'm, you know, one of the sheeple because I've decided to wear a mask to protect them from the possibility that I'm asymptomatic. Yeah, I think it was Isaac Asimov who said, uh, we live in a culture where now your ignorance is, is, uh, is, is what important or as valid as my knowledge, right? Yeah. Something he said something like something along those lines. Um, of course, that's part part of that prop, part of that problem, isn't that that endemic to uh, living in a society uh, where democracy democracy is so critical? Everybody gets to vote. Every I always said I've always said that the great thing about democracy is everybody gets a voice and vote. The bad thing about democracy is everybody gets a voice and vote. Right. Yeah. And. And uh, so there is something about uh, that kind of expertise. I mean, I think of uh, some persons who like to use the word elites, and I think that I think that's the word. Maybe that's a cover word for just uh, the rejection of of expertise and those who have uh, a certain kind of knowledge in a specific area that I simply do not, um, and that. For those persons who are conspiracy theorists, isn't that kind of uh, expertise, is, isn't education just suspect? Yeah, I, I think, well, I think anything that confronts the conspiracy theory, and from my perspective, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to put on my psychologist hat if somebody's upset with me. Um, I'm just going to avoid them. But, right, uh, right. You know, if you're, to use the mask example, if you're upset, if something about my wearing a mask upsets you because you think it's unnecessary, uh, how secure are you in your belief that it's unnecessary if you feel right. the need to harangue? <laughs> so, yeah, I, right. Well, what am I saying about myself, not about you? What am I saying about myself if I feel the need to say something to you publicly about your mask? I don't even, and I don't even know who you are. Right. That says more about me than it does you. Yeah, that's talked about insecurity. So there's so also I'm detecting here uh, with the conspiracy theorist personality. I don't know if there's a such thing, but um, I'm not a psychologist, so it's not my area of expertise. So I can be a little sloppy in my. I am a psychologist, and it's not my area of expertise. Well, either. yeah, but you're doing you're helping me out. You're no, no, you're doing a good job. I appreciate your your insights here. Um, 
And I just to show you, I just lost my question. I was going to ask. That's what oh. I get for that's what I get for uh, ad libbing. Yeah. But, but I was going to say something about. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say. I was going to say something about the insecurity of that. That that there certainly seems to be an insecurity of uh, behind this, um, almost a fear. Yeah, well, I think there is, and I'm, I'm trying to be careful. I mean, I'm a, I yeah. want to be respectful yeah. of people who are conspiracy theorists because I, I think the, the temptation is to say, well, these, these people aren't very bright. There's something emotionally defective about them. And what I'm trying to say is there are some personality traits, life experiences that make it more likely that a conspiracy theory is going to be attractive to you. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, I think. Um, I think it just comes back to the that low tolerance for ambiguity and uh, and I guess what I'll call low complexity thinking. Low complexity thinking, yeah. No, I think we should be clear. I don't think either one of us is, is saying that conspiracy theorists are not smart. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're trying to assess what, what kind of personality or think about what kind of personality tends to be attracted to that uh, kind of thinking. Um, and, uh, I knew a person, I knew it was passed away now, but I knew a person who never met a conspiracy theory he didn't like. Mm -hmm. Um, but he actually, I knew his background. He grew up in an environment. There was not much trust. He did right. not, he was not nurtured in any trusting relationships growing up with his parents, uh, and in other contexts. And so he was, he was by nature just suspicious of everything, you know? Yeah. And I think that's I think that's a significant linchpin in the, the personality makeup of people who who are enthusiastic about conspiracy theories is just that lack of trust. Yeah. Okay. This sort of reminds me a little bit of the uh, second and third century Christian Gnostics who had the who had the secret knowledge. <laughs> had them. Well, I have them. We know the mysteries. And <clears throat> if you. If you want to know them, uh, you need to be ushered into our community. Well, and a couple, you know, a couple of things that tells us it's not brand new. This this right. didn't just happen in the 20th or 21st century. And um, you know, the Gnostics got quite a bit of traction. There was, you know, the 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 apostles had to work, or the believers had to work pretty hard to to keep people from being drawn into. What the Gnostics had to say. Yeah, no, it did. It was a real challenge for the church. I, I read something the other day that I found intriguing where uh, this writer talks about even Jesus warned his disciples about not going after conspiracy theories. Uh, when he says, you know, um, uh, you'll hear people saying the Messiah's here or over here, over there, don't believe him. Uh, and then even I was thinking that when Jesus is coming down off the mountain of Caesarea Philippi, he asks, uh, who do who do people say that I am? He's, he's basically asking, what are the rumors out there? Mm -hmm. What's the conspiracies, you know? And so, so uh, this, this is something Jesus seemed to warn about. So let's talk a little bit, and, and um, maybe this is less psychology, but since as you, as you are a believer, and uh, uh, I'm sure you've given thoughts to some of these things, what, what stake do Christians have in trying to avoid falling into the conspiracies. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it comes back to uh, a sense of who's in charge here. 
Yeah. You know, do I, uh, you know, the wheels fell off about Genesis three and yeah. <laughs> where Adam, you know, Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think we have to be careful about, you know, buying into theories that give us control as opposed to being able to faithfully accept that, that God's, God's on the job independent of how it looks to me. Right. You know, and I think that's, I think that's the key to so much of scripture. Job, you know, immediately comes to mind for most people, but you know, there are parts of Ecclesiastes that say, you know what? Uh, I always think of uh, Ecclesiastes 9-11, the emergency verse, you know, that says things don't always work out like you think they were going to. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, things don't always work out like you think they should. However, you know, God is, God is still sovereign and God is still on the throne. So I think we have to be careful um, putting ourselves in charge. Yeah. And not all things have to be known as well. You know. Well, exactly. I, I, you know, as I was thinking this through and knowing we were going to meet, it, it occurred to me that North American culture has really lost a sense of mystery. Or we're really uncomfortable with mystery. And I, you know, you and I have each, I'm sure, talked to non-believers who want definitive answers about right. very specific things, and are not satisfied when I say I don't know. And I, I try to add, I don't have to know. I don't, you know, that's not necessary for me. I think early in my faith, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to be well-versed in apologetics, so I hadn't answered everything. And probably as I've gotten older, I'm much more comfortable with, boy, I, you know, I've, God has, has taken such good care of me and has been so kind and gracious to me for decades that I don't need to know details. Yeah. Yeah, there is something, there is something, and I'm, I, I've, I've become the same way as I've gotten older. There's something actually, to be honest, there's something that I find comforting about ambiguity. Um, mm -hmm. That I don't have to know all the answers, and particularly as a pastor, I don't have to know all the answers. I actually, this was many years ago in another church, a, a parishioner was upset at me one day because she asked me a question, and I don't even remember what the question was anymore. Uh, and I said, well, I don't know. And and she asked me, what in the world was the church paying me for if I didn't know the answer? <laughs> so uh, there is something about ambiguity. You know, maybe there's a, something about ambiguity, the, the willingness to embrace ambiguity at times. Is there is there something about a uh, an emotional maturity about that, don't you think? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think that is the case. And I, But I, you and I, again, are both aware that that many people's frustration with our denomination is that it, it doesn't have as many rules as, as some folks wish it did or, you know, right. The United Methodist church, part of what I love and hate about it is it doesn't tend to take a lot of really hard and fast stances on things. Right. Um, yes, that's right. So at, at, at times uh, we're okay that they don't and at other times we wish they did. So yeah. Right. And that's, yeah, like, that's sort around, of around my pet issue. They should have a specific stance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And if they don't address it, then, I'm, then I want to move on. Um, one final question, um, and I appreciate, again, you, you doing this. Um, back to the issue of Christians and a stake in, in not uh, running after conspiracy theories. It's, it, as you say, it's, it's a, an acknowledgement that we're not God, we can't know everything, and that's okay. 
But is it not also um, a concern? It should, I mean, the problem is, is that even though, let me say it this way, even though it seems that people who fall into this, these conspiracy theories want to know the truth, actually the reality is that they undermine what is true. Um, and isn't this bad for the witness of the church? Because I mean, if I go after every crazy conspiracy theory out there, why are you gonna, why are you gonna believe me when I say to you, you, you know, Jesus loves you and wants you to follow him? It perf makes perfect sense, but that's not how these people are going to see it. Okay. Okay. I, I think, you know, there's a reason Jesus talked so often about turning how we see things in terms of status and control upside down. Yeah. And so I, I think there are factions. I think it's a universal human mm -hmm. challenge. I think there are factions of the church that are seeking significance and seeking importance and so they um you know they take some pride in in feeling persecuted if that makes any sense oh it makes a lot of sense and i think for some folks this this will sound harsh but um probably because it is <laughs> some folks that i've seen who have have talked about well you know they were just persecuting me because i'm a believer I have to think, no, you were kind of being a jerk and, <laughs> and they were having a natural reaction to you. I don't think they were persecuted. It had nothing to do with your religion. <laughs> yeah. Having, having said that, uh, I don't in any means mean to say there isn't persecution. Right. Um, not so much in North America, but in the, in the rest of the world. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But for, uh, for Christians in the U.S. in general to feel persecuted, I think, is, is uh, having lost the focus. Yeah. I think part of that, too, goes to the fact that the church, uh, certainly in 2020, doesn't have the cultural influence it once did. And I think, I think sometimes what we are mourning, what we, what we are, we think we're promoting the cause of the gospel, but what we're really mourning is the loss of that influence. Um, and, and so we want to try and get that back. You know, as, as I, I always like to quote George Hunter from Asbury Seminary, if 1957 ever returns, the United Methodist Church is ready. Well, and, and you've written about the ways that, uh, that the church has has kind of co-opted itself by aligning itself with political power right. as opposed to being, uh, being that revolutionary witness that we're called to be. And I, I think part of the problem is in general, mainline denominations are not distinct from the culture. Oh, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I, I, I mean, I think there are some mainline clergy who think that somehow we present a radical alternative, but I think we're just bourgeois status quo, and that's why we are experiencing what we're experiencing. I mean, we're really no different than, than a thin veneer of Jesus here and there. And right now, some of our mainline listeners are pulling their hair out to hear me say that. But, but I think that's really what it is. And I wonder, by the way, is if we really took more seriously the witness of the gospel with the church as, as uh, the alternative, to the world and into the systems uh, that maybe we would be less enamored with conspiracy theories. <laughs> right. Well, and it, you know, what occurs to me, I mean, we're kind of coming full circle here, but yeah. um, you know, when you look at Jesus ministry, there was a conspiracy. 
and he was well aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if we look at his response to that very real and life-threatening conspiracy, I think that's our model. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. You know, Jesus, Jesus, had, Jesus knew there was a conspiracy. He knew how this was going to end. And, and yet, he, in service to the mission that he came for, he continued to move forward. And just, uh, you know, I think of that pivotal dialogue with Pilate, where Pilate's yeah. saying, don't you understand that I, you know, I hold your life in my hands? And Jesus says, you don't have any power that I didn't give you. Yeah. No. <laughs> Which right. was not the right answer. Which was not the right answer, definitely, at least not from Pilate's perspective. Yeah. 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 Um, well, Lee, thank you. Lee Weatherby, uh, professor of uh, clinical counseling. Yes. Correct, at Ashland Theological Seminary, and I appreciate your time, and uh, thanks so much for your insight. Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. All right. Everybody take care. Hey folks, I'm coming to you from my study at home in the basement. Um, it's a place that uh, I love to be to prepare sermons and uh, Sunday school lessons and to read and write and reflect upon my faith. Uh, it is also the place where I pray and where I read scripture. Uh, I believe uh, that uh, scholarship and um, uh, theological reflection are both very important to the work of ministry in the church. I believe that the head and heart, since they've been created by God, are integrated together. And you just heard my interview today. And uh, if you uh, enjoyed what you heard, and if you found what you heard helpful, uh, let me ask you a question. How would you like to have that kind of depth of conversation about Christian faith on a regular basis? Perhaps you've been sensing a call to pastoral or parachurch ministry or are already serving the church in some capacity as a pastor or layperson, and, and you're thinking that you need to bolster your education. Well, if so, I invite you to consider Ashland Theological Seminary in Ashland, Ohio. They offer traditional in-person classes for that face-to-face -face relational experience, and they offer an online experience for those who prefer to participate from a distance. I received my seminary uh, training from Ashland, and I'm forever grateful for the quality and the depth of learning that I received there. I never regretted uh, deciding to attend uh, Ashland Seminary. I love the place so much, in fact, that I've taught as an adjunct professor there for over 25 years. Ashland Seminary believes that the head and the heart, theology and practice are integrated together. Intellectual rigor and spiritual formation are two of the most important hallmarks of Ashland. And so if you are considering theological education, check out Ashland Theological Seminary in Ashland, Ohio. Contact information is uh, available uh, in the details of this podcast. You can also Google Ashland Theological Seminary and easily find their website. I'm offering this testimonial, and I want you to know this, I'm offering this testimonial free of charge because I believe in the mission of Ashland Theological Seminary as it serves the mission of the gospel in the world.